namo tassa bhagavato arat samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arat samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arat samma sambuddhassa So this evening I'm going to talk about the third noble truth the noble truth that what we call the cessation of suffering or uh, attaining of nibbana I think it's a long waited talk people are looking forward to hear about happiness we've been talking about suffering we are how to overcome suffering <laughs> what about happiness let's go to the real thing why we're here <laughs> so uh the, the buddha had a mission statement just like universities have a mission statement <laughs> he is the buddha's mission statement he said that suffering is to be understood that's why we've been talking about it all the time so that you can understand it the cause of suffering should be abandoned so that's why we've been giving all the talks about how to abandon the cause of suffering craving clinging greed hatred delusion then Nibbana, the third noble truth, is to be realized. And the path that leads to the cessation of suffering, the noble eightfold path, should be practiced, should be developed. The, word, the Pali word is bhavana, to develop, to cultivate. So we've been actually giving all these teachings based on the mission statement of the buddha so it has occupied a lot of our time to at least to tell you <laughs> how to understand suffering how to abandon the cause of suffering how to to cultivate the path so now we are going to how to realize to realize the path the path and how to realize the nibbana So the question that you ask why people don't talk about nibbana uh, enlightenment it's a tough topic <laughs> it's really tough <laughs> because it's unconditioned the rest of the things that we're talking about they are conditioned but nibbana is unconditioned it's beyond words and concept and language so it's really difficult to understand So I think the best way we can do is like the way they say they talk in Zen pointing at the moon so so you have to look at the moon not at the finger so I'm I'm going to use these words this evening but I request you to look at the moon not my my finger because the words and concept I'm giving is like really actually the finger pointing to the moon Now I'm going to use some Pali words just to clarify certain things please uh, be patient don't go bananas 
because the Pali words really speak more directly. Right? Now, the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. Now, cessation there, the Pali word is niroda. Niroda. Roda means prison, and ni means no. So, no prison. That's what it means. You see how Pali words really very uh, beautiful, really. So, no prison of suffering. So, no prison of birth and death. No prison of stress, as you must have experienced yourself. So, uh, really, we are trying to practice to go out of this prison, really. There are two ways of reaching uh, ultimate happiness, reaching lesser happiness. And the Buddha tried them. One was self-mortification. Another one is self-indulgence. Those were extremes. And the Buddha found out both extremes were, didn't bring happiness. So he found a way how to reach happiness. And uh, for me, I also found out through my experiment ways to happiness. And I tried some of them. The first route I used, I, I would call it samsaric route. I took samsaric route to happiness. I experimented it. It brought me some happiness, but not ultimate happiness. There's also another way, nibbanic route. Some now using Pali words in English to really make things clear. There are two roots. One is samsara, another one is nibbana. Samsara is also another interesting Pali word. Sara, sam, sara, sara is sarati, is to wander, to walk around. And so it's really endless wandering. That's what we call samsara. So birth and death and suffering and more suffering and all that. So I would call that samsaric road. I tried that one, and uh, it was bringing some happiness, but still I was not satisfied with this kind of route. So I tried another one. That's why I'm a monk now. <laughs> it's very clear when I was in India in, uh, about this, this route, samsaric route. So I was in India in 1990, I went there as an ex exchange student. That's how I learned Buddhism, actually. So in my first, day, first year there, 1991, and I went to Shimla. It's a huge spot. Uh, those who have been to India, I think you know Shimla. It's a very beautiful place. There's a lot of snow in winter. So I read in the newspaper that there's going to be snowfall. And I grew up in Uganda. I've never seen snow, except in a fridge. <laughs> I, it was fun playing with those cubes and all this. And uh, 
I saved some money. I was on a government scholarship, so I saved some money to go to Shimla in India. When I reached Shimla, I found the whole land was covered with snow and there were snowflakes and all that. Then I started doing like this. I was wearing a, a jacket. I was doing like this, so snow went here, snow went here, in my boots. The Indians were looking like this. Who is this guy? <laughs> this African guy really fascinated with. I mean, I had snow all over. I was full of snow. <laughs> that was the first one minute or two. I was so happy. I had a camera. Actually, I bought a camera specifically for that, to take pictures of snow. I remember the, the, you, I used to rewind it like this. I was holding it like this while I was enjoying my sensual pleasures. I'm telling you, after a while, it started to be cold that <laughs> I've never experienced that cold in Uganda. <laughs> I dropped my lovely camera. <laughs> I could not even hold it. <laughs> so what's happening to me? <laughs> I mean, talk about delusion. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a work of delusion. It blinds us. We cannot even tell. I mean, uh, I wasn't studying snow in India. Maybe I would know about it, but I had no clue about snow. For me, it was fun because it was full of sun, it was shining and all these snowflakes. I really, really screamed. I was going through this agony of coldness. And, I mean, especially in the boots. <laughs> I had boots all snow had stuck there. I cannot remove the snow to walk back to my hotel. It was suffering. So I can see clearly the difference between holding on, craving, and the much energy that I used to go to Shimla and really enjoying my pleasure and then immediate suffering. I could see clearly the connection. That's some sadic route. It's very cynic. <laughs> yeah, and we have invested a lot of energy into that. Time, of course. The next day, I didn't do that kind of thing. <laughs> so I went back to see the snow, but in a different way. Uh, I didn't really start putting snow here and all over there. But I, 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 it was great to look at snow, actually, from that point of view. And I took as many photos I li as I liked. So for me, that was really, really an experiment. Of course, I have done so many things in my life to experiment, but uh, uh, there's not enough time to talk about these things. <laughs> Then uh, I took another route after a while. I, I went to meditate and all this, and I found out meditation was great, actually. I, it, it really helped me to overcome suffering, and not all of it, but some of it. And I thought most people actually understand it, uh, that route. I thought most people understand meditation and all this. So one time I was in America, and I took a bus to Vermont. I have friends in Vermont. So I was sitting next to an Italian-American guy working in Las Vegas. He told me, he asked me, what are you doing? Oh, you know, I told him I was a scuba diving instructor in Thailand for two years, and now I'm in... 
and I am is meditating and watching my breath and uh, say, is that what you're doing? I said, yes. Uh, then he told me he works in Las Vegas, Italian hot restaurant, and he's having lots of fun. And he asked me, can you please visit me in Las Vegas? I said, no, 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 I'm meditating. He, then he, he started asking seriously, why did you leave your job and start meditating? I said, well, meditation it brings more happiness. He said, you know what? You should see a psychiatrist. <laughs> I said, who is this, this person you're telling me to see? <laughs> In my life, I've never seen one. So he said, you mean you're observing the breath all the time? And then I told him, yes, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether this guy convinced that guy. He was so bored and he started sleeping. I think we're on a different path. <laughs> Definitely, it became very clear that we're on a different path. So there are two routes. One is not so common, an Ibanic route. <laughs> so uh, let us really actually navigate what's really an Ibana. It's a Pali word, definitely. It has two. One is a prefix. Pali words are prefix and routes. I mean roots. So ni means, uh, of course, no. And vana is craving. So no craving is what we call Nibana. That's a grammatical analysis. And then uh, another way, ni is there means, uh, of course, you already know what ni, but there's also a, route, a root called va, which means blow out. So when you put this together, it means blowing out. That's what nibbana means. So blowing out what then? For the fire of greed, hatred, and delusion. Actually, in India those days, they used to have this... Uh, Brahmanic sacrifices, and they used to use fire. And when they blow it, so that means cooling, okay, cooling off, blowing out. And the Buddha used this word. Actually, that word it was in, in, in India those days. Even up to now, Nibuto means to cool, like cooling polish. You can Nibbana polish, you cool it down. So it's still being used. So um, from uh, their life, actually, this word is very common in some countries. I went to Australia for three months to teach there in Melbourne. I found a street called Nibana. Wow, I say, wow, the Aussies are going, doing a great job. <laughs> They're using these words in their, their language, I mean, their uh, life. In USA, when I was still in the monastery in West Virginia, where I was a monk for eight years, People used to drive me, and in the evening they would offer me a drink. And it's amazing. They say, Bante, can you choose any drink? And guess what? I found what you call Nibbana drink. In America, it's amazing that you have, you have adapted these words, actually. It's amazing. Probably it has a message to quench thirst. Yes, actually it was cool, quenching thirst. In fact... In Pali, the word called tanha means thirst. 
So when we attain Nibbana, we quench the thirst, the thirst of craving. Some few words that I think that are going to help us to understand what is Nibbana. Um, just to point what Nibbana is, let's say psychologically we can talk about attaining Nibbana as reaching ultimate happiness, cessation of suffering. Metaphysically, we can also talk about Nibbana as uh, uh, this, the end of the cycle of samsara, birth and death. In the discourses, the Buddha talked about Nibbana metaphysically. Sometimes he talks about Nibbana as an island, uh, a shelter, refugee, the farther shore. It's really very interesting. From ethical point of view, actually, Nibbana is really attaining Nibbana. It means uh, to overcome greed, hatred, and delusion. So those are a few things to really uh, try to define Nibbana, but just trying. In discourses, the Buddha gave few words to, to really designate what this state uh, Nibbana is. He used positive terms like the truth, the profound, subtle, unique, wonderful, marvelous, peace, bliss, purity, freedom, happiness, supreme happiness, final goal, the ultimate goal. So if somebody asks you what's Nibbana, you can always use those words. Also, he used negative terms, the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, the deathless, fearless, sorrowless, unafflicted. This is some few words to help you to understand what Nibbana is. Now, my teacher, one of the, the teacher who ordained me is called Sado Silananda, actually. He's a Burmese monk who passed away. He was a very senior monk. He was a rector of the university in Burma, and he, he lived in, in, in California. That's where I ordained. So he really actually gave me some glimpse of what's, how to define this state. He said that Nibbana has to be at least uh, defined in three ways, just to come closer to what Nibbana is. He said that Nibbana involves three, stages, uh, three things. One is when the mind takes the unconditioned as the object, and when we abandon the ten fetters, and when there is a, the arising of path consciousness and fruit consciousness. These are technical terms, but uh, those three things, when they happen, that's when Nibbana arises. So now, uh, to give you just a comparison with what we are doing in Vipassana meditation, in Vipassana meditation or Samatha meditation, we have to take a conditioned object. Let's say we say, okay, please observe the breath. Isn't it? Every time we say, okay, please observe the breath, that's what we tell you. Take an object and observe. That's the same thing that happens with Nibbana, to take the unconditioned as the object. The difference you hear it's one is conditioned when we practice, and one when we reach a super mundane level, then it's unconditioned. The second stage, uh, this can happen, of course, uh, almost the same time. Abandoning of the five hindrances, that's what we, we do in our practice. So with Nibbana, 
we abandoned 10 fetters. There's a difference between five hindrances and 10 fetters. I'll tell you in a bit, actually. So uh, then the arising of insight knowledges and jhanas, those are deep meditation states. So it's the same with the, when we reach Nibbana, it's the arising of path consciousness. These are called supermundane consciousness. They are divided into path and fruit. So for me, that was a wonderful definition my uh, preceptor gave for me to really get close to what is this ultimate goal for meditation? What's this Nibbana? Anyway, I put this out for you so you can remember in case people ask you, please, why did you go to IMS to meditate? Don't be shy. <laughs> Don't tell them to just to overcome stress. That's a fringe benefit. That's a bonus. You can tell them, I went to IMS to meditate to attain Nibbana. They will understand, I think. <laughs> By the way, actually, it's very interesting, actually. Do you have some ideas how you can describe your experience to people there out when you go back? Do you have some ideas? I'm not forcing you to think about it. <laughs> because uh, when I told this Italian-American that I'm observing the breath, he had no clue that you can spend time and observe the breath and mental states and all that. Now, you go there back to your friends, uh, maybe in Finland or in Mozambique, Uganda for my case, and all the people in America who came from different places, England, German, Switzerland. People ask you, what have you been doing in this summer vacation? Okay, went to IMS, I paid over $5,000. <laughs> oh, $5,000, over. Yes, what were you doing there? Oh, I was sitting on a cushion. <laughs> Sit on a cushion, there's no sofas there? <laughs> Please, can you tell me what you're doing? I was walking back and forth. <laughs> Is that fun? <laughs> then I observed the breath. Then in breath and out breath. Come on, haven't you been breathing since we were born? And then anger rose, and uh, with my anger. <laughs> what did you do when anger rose? The teacher told me to observe it. <laughs> okay, let's get serious, actually. This is a very serious talk. This is a very serious talk. In order to take Nimbanic root, it takes actually courage. It takes courage, though it's not very enticing. Uh, you need to remove um, fast craving. As I told you, there are two actually approaches. In the samsaric route, uh, you can look for the object of desire and immerse in them one after the other 
and I've tried that. I wasn't born a monk. I was a scuba diving instructor. I knew how to follow up this object of desire. I knew you cannot really say that I have no clue. I have clues how to look for an object after the other, and even maybe much better than you, because I, I've been to the deepest oceans, I've been to the mountains, I've been everywhere, and I didn't find much happiness. So uh, any, anyway, that route, you, ha you can get the object of desire, for instance, maybe an ice cream, and then you get it. Maybe you have some desire for ice cream, ice cream, and then that desire rises. Then you, you you can start to act on it. Maybe you can go to bar center and get your ice cream and and enjoy it and come back. You can bring some and keep in a fridge. Do you still have fridge here? When I was a yogi here, we used to have a fridge in a yogi space there. Yes, you can keep your ice cream there. And then you put a name and all this <laughs> so that nobody takes it and all that. But I mean, every time we're going to think about ice cream, I mean, a lot of time we invest in it. Sometimes we eat it and then we don't feel any, any kind of joy in eating it. Though we have invested a lot of time to go for it and, and look around whether nobody's seeing you and you go there <laughs> down the bar center and get ice cream. And, but What's very interesting, at least in my experience, it is not the object of desire. It's the feeling that arises from the object. And that feeling is always changing, actually. That feeling is always changing. And when we get, we get frustrated, we get frustrated. And then the amount of thoughts that we invest in that, it's just amazing. Maybe at night you might think about your ice cream. And you might even decide maybe to come down for it. You become a frigidarian. You keep on coming. <laughs> like frequent trips to the fridge. Okay, now let's go to Nibaniki Road. I think this is okay, this is the Nibaniki Road, I think. This very serious route. Here you have to see three things. The Nibaniki route route is very, very important. So you have to see first the gratification of the sensual desires. I mean, the Buddha didn't say there's no joy in these sensual desires. There is. In fact, he said that that's why people get hooked. Yes. So the first thing is to be mindful when sensual desire arises. Then the danger. The danger of sensual desires is they are always changing, so unsatisfactory, and selflessness. So we have to do that. And then the escape, that's the third stage. The escape from the sensual desire, and that's the bliss of renunciation. Because once we do that, there's a cessation of craving. That's uh, Andrea talk about the dependent origination. Once there is this escape from sensual desire, then we are entering this dependent origination like the cessation of craving, from cessation of craving, cessation of clinging, from cessation of clinging, cessation of becoming, cessation, from cessation of becoming, cessation of birth. From cessation of birth, then that's the end of all aging and, and uh, death and all these things. So this is how actually we go into this uh, uh, really actually 
Nibanic route really ending this process really. It takes time, it may not be today, but uh, this is actually the route. You remember those three things. One is gratification. The second one is danger, seeing danger in sensual desire. And that's a big step. Do you think this American uh, Italian was seeing the danger of working at Las Vegas, Las Vegas? Las Vegas? Do you think he was seeing it? No, he didn't go to that stage. And then the third stage is escape. Throughout the suttas, the Buddha talk about these things that actually other people might know about gratification, but not so many people know the danger. They cannot connect the danger. Yes, they cannot connect. And the people uh, cannot escape. They don't find escape. So, now, this Nibbana thing, is it difficult to attain it or it's very easy? I cannot answer that question for you. You find out. <laughs> this is your homework. <laughs> but from what I read from the suttas, it seemed to be not so difficult, especially at the first level, which is called Sotapanna. Sotapanna. I'll tell you what it means in Pali. So there's a discourse in Sanyuta Nikaya where the Buddha say, that they say that the factors necessary to attain Sotapanna, which is stream entry, is association with the true person who understands the Dharma. I'm sure you are doing that already. You are associating with people here who understand the, the Dharma. And then listening to the true Dharma, really listening intently. In fact, some, in some discourse they say when you listen to the Dharma, the true Dharma, you can overcome even the five hindrances and attain these seven, uh, seven bojangas that uh, um, that guy talked about beautifully, actually. In Burma, it's amazing. When people listen to Dharma, they are like this. They sit very, very, um, like in a respectful way and in an attentive way. The whole one hour people are just like this. And when you're listening to a Dharma, really, there's no hindrance that is going to arise. You're not going to think about uh, robbing a bank or something like that. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> because you are really, really attentive. So I was amazed when I went to Burma for three months. People listening to the, um, to the Dhamma talk. Not all, but I found some people, uh, when they're listening to Dhamma talk, they're all like this, very attentive. So no wonder that uh, Sotapanna, Sota means actually ear, so listener, people listen to the Dhamma talk, they can attain enlightenment also, I, provided they have done a homework. I'm not saying go the easy way, <laughs> just listen to Dhamma talk. Sotapanna. I'm saying there are some people who have done their work in their homework. They really have cultivated a lot of um, paramis and perfections and really just listening to Dhamma talk, it's enough to lead them to that stage. Paying proper attention, Yoniso Manisikara in Pali, Yoniso. Then practicing Dharma in according to the Dharma, that means practicing the Noble Eightfold Path and all these things. Those are the four factors that the Buddha gave, but this really makes it so easy, actually, not so difficult. 
He's the hope for those people who think it's very difficult. <laughs> in the four foundation of mindfulness, the suttas that, uh, that uh, we are actually teaching from, most of the talks actually, they're related to that discourse. Really, it's a main discourse about meditation. The Buddha gave the five-fold purpose of, the med of practicing meditation. Five-fold purposes of practicing meditation. The first one, he said, because this is a direct path, in other words, leading to Nibbana. For the first purpose is for the purification of beings. Being, beings, in Pali, it's called sattā, which means attached being, uh, pe people who are attached, actually. So when we practice meditation, we remove attachment. In other words, purifying the mind to be simple. Purifying the mind, which is uh, uh, full of greed, hatred, and delusion. When we practice meditation, we actually purify our mind from greed, hatred, and delusion. So now, this is very important that it covers all the four purposes of practice meditation. It's like buy one, get five free. Yes, if you purify your mind, the rest is, is just karma along with this. This year I was in England teaching in West London and uh, I actually I found out, I, I, I like bookshops actually, and I went to a bookshop and I found in a bookshop, it was saying buy one and get one for half price. <laughs> so it's different. <laughs> Here it's actually you get all them free. Once you purify your mind, the rest, it just comes really after that. Like the second purpose is for surmounting of sorrow and lamentation. That's the second benefit or purpose, to overcome sorrow and lamentation. The third is for the disappearance of pain and grief. The Fourth is for the attaining of the true way, the noble eightfold path. And the fifth is for the realization of Nibbana. That's the foundation of mindfulness. We practice it to realize Nibbana. So basically, uh, this is what we are doing, actually. Though you have a little bit of pain here and there, I don't know. Do you have some pain? <laughs> so, but you know you'll overcome that pain maybe at the end of the retreat, and also you had some moments when you didn't have pain, you know? But what's very interesting in that discourse, the Buddha gave a loyal seal. Actually, a few discourses, the Buddha really gave a guarantee. It's not about no, money-back guarantee, but uh, it's really very interesting guarantee that he gave. He, uh, this is the guarantee he gave. This will make you happy, I think. He said bhikkhus, last talk I told you what is a bhikkhu. I don't need to, to, to now to talk about who's a bhikkhu. So bhikkhus, if anyone should properly develop the four foundation of mindfulness for seven years or even seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for that person. One of the two fruits could be expected for that person. That means either final knowledge, that means the final enlightenment, here and now, or if there's any trace of clinging left, 
that means you have some kind of clinging and craving, even for the Dharma. Then you can reach the third level of enlightenment. For me, that's amazing that you need a minimum of seven days and a maximum of seven years. So now, how many days you, you've been here? Maybe you're going to scratch your head. Maybe you cannot even figure out them. I think that's amazing that actually we've spent here for more than seven days. Maybe there are some people who have attained final, final goal. We don't know. Second, third, we don't know. What's very interesting in this uh, discourse is that the Buddha didn't say that, okay, what is expected is the first level of enlightenment and second level. It's really actually the third and fourth. That shows that it's relatively, and this is an incentive for you, it's relatively accessible when you practice diligently. Not in fits and starts. Okay, now, <laughs> you have maybe 10 days remaining. That's still, that's the minimum. <laughs> Work on it <laughs> if you haven't. <laughs> so I leave this for you uh, to find out, is it easy really to attain full happiness? Is it easy really to attain first level of enlightenment? Not as an investment uh, that you always uh, kind of uh, have the expectation, okay, today, next hour, I'm going to attain the first level, second level, third level. No, 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 no. It's just really to say, to give you confidence that it's possible. All what I'm saying, that this is possible. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, how to do it? We go to abandoning the 10 fetters. Fetters the Pali word is sanyojana, sanyojana, which means to yoke, to bind. So the fetters, they are the ones which bind us on, the, uh, on samsara, the round of birth and death. So that's what they bind us. They are different from hindrances, though some of them have the same name, but they are a little bit different, actually. If you think of a tree with leaves and branches, and also you see, you see the roots. So the hindrances are like the branches and leaves. And the fetters are the roots. Because you can't see them, but they're very powerful. In fact, the five hindrances manifest from those, uh, those roots. As you know that always branches and leaves, they grow from roots. <laughs> That's where they end up there. So this is a difference, actually. There's a subtle difference, actually, between fetters and hindrances. Hindrances, they hinder us from gaining concentration, all that. But fetters hinder us from attaining enlightenment. Now, we go to these fetters. There are ten of them. The first one is called Sakaya Diti. Belief in an individual self. I think Carol talked about self, and many people have talked about self in some form or fashion, but I want to really, really go deep into what's really this self. Somebody even asked me a question about self and all this. Now, there are 20 views of self. 
I'd like to spell them out for you so that you can overcome the sense of self. There are 20 of them. They are related to the five aggregates, which already you have already had this talk already, the five aggregates. So there are four, and you can multiply into the five, and you get 20. That's how it comes. Now, with the, with the material form, the body, so we have a view that I am the body. I possess the body. For the body contained in myself, and I am in the body. So those are four, just only for the body. This is a view that really leads us to suffering. <laughs> really, actually, it leads us to suffering. That's why in the meditation, when the Buddha gave the instruction, when you are meditating, he just said that there is a body. Not there is a body which is mine. <laughs> We'll come to other aggregates, actually, that really, I think, will make a lot of sense. Okay, you have your body, no problem. <laughs> so let's go to the feelings, all right? Feeling, there's a view that I feel. I feel disappointed. I there, a view. I possess feelings. Feelings are contained in myself. I am in feelings. Now, Watch when you have pain. How much you own the pain. This is my pain. In the instruction the Buddha gave seemed to counteract that. He said that there is a feeling. So we just watch unpleasant, pleasant, neutral feelings. In Sanya, which is a perception, I perceive, I possess perception. Perception are contained in myself. I am perceptions. This is where fighting arises. When people perceive things in a different way. You remember when I gave a talk, I think the first time I gave a talk about distorted perceptions? People fight about perception. This is blue. No, this is red. I don't know who gave a talk about this, <laughs> where there was a lot of conflict between blue and red. I don't, one of the teachers must have given a talk. I think it was Carol, about the difference between how she was seeing blue and another person was seeing some colors. So it's really that attachment, uh, this, this self, actually. Sankaras, which is mental formation, I'm my, I'm, I am my mental formations. I possess, my, I'm, I possess mental formations. Mental formations are contained in myself. I am mental formations. Now, mental formation, for instance, when you have greed, uh, fear, anger. So many people come and say, oh, I, I have anger. No, you don't own it. So that's a view that we have. We have to use it, of course, in communication. In communication, we have to use it. That's why the Buddha, when he gave instruction in the practice about mind states, he said, there is a mind. That's it. For further or to the extent necessary for awareness and mindfulness. So we use these things to gain further awareness. Lastly, there's the, uh, the consciousness. We always have this view. I'm consciousness, I possess consciousness, 
consciousness is contained in myself, I am in consciousness. So if you multiply all this, you get the 20 views of self. I hope people who have a self, who have invested in this self, they can always revisit this and find out what are the 20 views of self. If we have this view of self, if we think about these five aggregates as a self that they are owned by something behind them, then we are tied on the round of birth and death, samsara. That's what we call a fetter. They bind, it binds you to the wheel. It's very difficult to break it, really. It takes time, it takes practice. That's why most or all the practices we've been giving you here is to, br to break through this. We say it in different words, but actually to break through this deep-seated fetter that actually binds us and keeps us suffering. I think this, I had to spend more time on this because it's a really uh, big thing. So we take the five aggregates as I, mine, myself. That's the fetter. And once we release, once we let it go, even for a simple moment, that I, mine, myself, we can experience what we call moment-to-moment -moment Nibbana. It's written in discourse. It's called Tadanga Nibbana. Tadanga Nibbana. Momentary. And this is where the practice becomes very interesting. That's why I spend more time about the self. Is that any time we release that sense of I, in other words, the CEO of anger, eh? you, we all want to become CEOs, eh? <laughs> we are the one behind the show, you know. <laughs> we control everything. We control our anger. We, uh, we manage, micromanage anger and all these things. Well, we're in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble. <laughs> so uh, this is very interesting that once we release, even if a moment, there's that degree of freedom. I don't want this to be an academic or lecture, but I really want you to understand what's this self? Where does it arise from? What's it? Okay. The next fetter is called wichkicha, which means difficult cure. Literally, it means difficult cure, skeptical doubt about the teachings, about the Dhamma, about the Noble Eightfold Path, about love karma. Actually, this was very common during the time of the Buddha. There were so many skeptics yeah, who had all these views, uh, these uh, doubts about this and that. So that's also another fetter. And there's another one which is called uh, attachment to rites and rituals. This is like... Uh, attachment to many rituals, religious observances, as the end in themselves. Like you think that, okay, this is actually in India those days, I think also these days. People used to walk like dogs, thinking that when they walk like, uh, live like dogs, in, like cows and all these things, that is going to lead to enlightenment. So we have, of course, some rituals also, and religious rituals, bowing down, lighting candles, but all of them have a meaning. 
So they are actually a means to the end. But if you think that rituals are the end in themselves, then that becomes a big problem. And that can be a hindrance. Now, in terms of get, gaining your first enlightenment, once you cut that, those three, you attain the first level of enlightenment. Good luck. <laughs> you cut those three, <laughs> you attain the fruit. If you just cut on the first one and you gain what we call maga, which is the path. We don't have much time actually to go through them, but um, I'll just list them because it's too much. I don't want you to be unhappy about these things. So I'm just going to list them actually. At least you know how to reach the first level by cutting those three. Now, the fourth fetter is called Kamaraga. Sensuous, sensuous craving. Raga means gluing. <laughs> and come, of course, means the senses. So gluing to senses is actually a fetter. The hindrance is called kamachanda. The word chanda there is very interesting. In monastic life, we actually use this word. It's a very common word, chanda. Chanda, uh, when we are in a monastery, and there's a, a, a transaction of the Sangha, if you're unable to attend, they come to you and ask, please, can you give your approval? That's what they come to say, Bhante Buddha please give us your chanda. So what they're asking, please, can you give approval so that the meeting continues to go to goes on? That's very interesting. When it comes to this uh, defilement, it's called Kamachanda. But for me, it makes a lot of sense. When we talk about Kamachanda, it's actually we approve the sensual world to take over our life. Is that familiar to you? You give approval. Eh? Seal of approval. Okay, do whatever you want. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> Sights, tastes, and all that. That's what we're doing, actually, all the time, approving. There's no resistance. We're approving. So this is a very interesting word, actually, kamachanda. It's a hindrance, but kamaraga is more of, actually, gluing to the senses. That's why it becomes a fetter. So then the fifth one is called biapada. That's uh, ill will. That means your will is ill. That's what it means, basically. So those are the two, the next two fetters. If you weaken them, just attenuate them, just weaken them, you attain the second level of enlightenment. Just weakening them, not overcoming them. So the second level of enlightenment you attain. Then if you really cut them completely, you attain the third level of enlightenment. That's what the Buddha said. When you practice the fourth foundation of mindfulness, Minimum seven days, maximum seven years. At least that's the minimum you can reach. Okay, so at least you know what that sutta uh, talks about now. You know what is to abandon and all that. Okay, we go to the sixth one. is called ruparaga, which is craving for material existence. That means always craving to exist after maybe death and all that. Uh, one to, uh, until from the first to the fourth jhana. That's uh, material jhanas, basically. And arupa raga is craving for fine immaterial jhanas. And then mana, that's the eighth. It's actually 
mana is a very beautiful word that you should learn actually. Very interesting because I've seen that's most people have this problem. Mana, the eighth fetter, in English they say conceit, arrogance, and pride, but for me, it doesn't really speak to me. The Pali word speaks to me because manati means to measure, to measure. That's what we are doing actually all the time. We measure others. Have, is that familiar to you? Eh? You keep on measuring, oh, this is a good yogi. He's walking slowly. I'm not a good yogi. So we keep on measuring all the time, all the time. I did this measurement one time, actually, while I was in Burma. And there was a yogi always, whenever I got the meditation hall at three, he was there already meditating. I start measuring. What time does he go to the meditation hall? I mean, it was amazing where that thought came. <laughs> I found out one time I could not sleep, and I went there. I was the first one in the meditation hall. I said, yes, I'm a good yogi. <laughs> I saw him coming, actually. I said, oh, he comes to this meditation hall after 2.30 like this? I mean, I was so inspired by this Canadian. He was a psychologist. I, I talked to him at the end. I, I thanked him for his practice. He was diligent. I mean, waking up at 2.30 to meditate until 11, I was inspired. And he was a layman, actually. So anyway, we measure people. We measure. These are the three kinds of measurement that I think uh, are very important for you to remember. Because most people co complain self-judgment. I judge myself and all these things. It all comes from this feta, which is called mana. So we measure. We are inferior. Others are superior. That's one measurement. And also we do the other way around. I'm superior. Others are inferior. <laughs> that's the that's omana. Actually, that's a Pali word called omana. That's giving yourself grade O. That's why I remember the Pali word. It starts with omana, which means you are giving grade O, grade zero. <laughs> you are inferior, others are superior. If you have that in your mind, you know that you have a long way to go and you have to cut that off. Is that familiar? <laughs> okay. There is another measurement. It's called atimana, giving yourself grade A, because atimana starts with A. So you give yourself A that you're superior. Oh, the entire world rotates around you. I'm telling you one time, 2009, I went to Scandinavian countries. My intention was to spend Wasa there for three months. I went to Sweden and I was teaching there from time to time. So I decided to go to, to Norway and I took a bus to go to a monastery. There's a monastery in Oslo. I took this bus and the whole night and I reached Oslo in the morning and there were some few people, tourists I think. One guy was really wonderful guy. He came out of the bus and also I went, uh, came out of the bus. So we went to the bathrooms, we went to the bathrooms. Unfortunately, they were locked, hermetically sealed. There was no way how you can go to the bathroom. This guy, he said, this is anti-American. I said, what? 
what has no <laughs> I had no words for this because I didn't get any correlation between Norway and America. And I wonder, the Norwegians are great. I don't think they would do it on purpose to go against the Americans and lock the bathrooms. It didn't just make sense, actually. And also, I'm a, I'm a Ugandan, of course, but also I'm Americanized, actually. I'm also a US citizen. And for me, I, I also wanted to go to the restroom, but I, I had no this measuring between Norway and USA. I was just cool there. I was just cool, really. Noting, eh? Keep on noting. <laughs> the uncomfortable feeling because it was really a whole bus ride from Sweden to Norway. <laughs> I was busy noting. <laughs> noting. <laughs> unpleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant. It's really sad, actually, sometimes the way people compare, actually. I've traveled around the world, actually, but it's, very, it's a very sad situation, actually. It looks fun, but it's very sad. That brings a lot of suffering whenever we compare. Even same, same, that there's also a comparison, same, same. It's still a comparison, actually. In society, of course, it's okay, but uh, in a, the path to enlightenment, actually, it delays our enlightenment. Okay, the ninth one is Udacha, which means restlessness, and Avidya, ignorance, that's the tenth fetter. So if you overcome those five fetters, you attain final enlightenment. Now, that's what we call our hands. One Pali word that you need to learn is sotapana, actually, because the English translation doesn't do justice to that word. The first level of enlightenment is called sotapana. Sota means actually, they, they translate it stream, but that's kind of a metaphor for a stream, which like when you attain that level, you cannot go back. That's what it means. But actually, sota there means the noble eightfold path. So whenever you practice meditation and you enter the super mundane, the Noble Eightfold Path, you actually have a glimpse for the first time for the Dhamma. And you attain that first level, first level of enlightenment, Sotapana. So remember, Sota means it has three meanings. One is stream, another one's ear. That's what the ear is called, Sota. That's why they are called Savaka, listeners. People who attain the enlightenment are called listeners. They have to learn the ear. But the very Important what to learn is the sota means the noble eightfold path. If you remember that, that would be great. Now, finally, I have only one minute to go. Uh, I just want to tell you that discussing about what happens when somebody has gone enlightenment it's beyond the limits of words and uh, language and concept. Even the Buddha uh, was asked this question, what happened when somebody has got enlightenment after death? What happened to that person? The Buddha said that 
because this person actually asks so many questions, okay, does that person exist or does not exist, or both exist and not exist? Neither exist nor doesn't exist. The Buddha say that does not apply. Now he was confused. The Buddha gave a very good simile about fire simile. He said that when fire goes, does it go to north, south? Where does fire go? Doesn't, uh, can you say that the fire went north or south? No. So he said that when you have reached final enlightenment and you pass away, which is not death actually, it's called passing away. You attain Nibbana. When there's five aggregates all gone, then you're just gone. <laughs> Please let me know. I would like to know. I'm very interested. <laughs> so, certain things that we like, things which are in condition, is very difficult to explain them in words and concepts and all these things. A question that comes, okay, is desire to attain Nibbana not another desire? That's a very big question. Is desire to attain Nibbana not another desire? Actually, that's kind of desire, we call it desire to be desireless. The other one is desire to be desireful, other kind of desire we have. The Pali word is Dhammachanda, right? The desire to practice Dhamma, the desire to meditate, that's called Dhammachanda is kind of wholesome desire. It's like when you have a peg, I mean, I mean a, a thorn, and you use a peg to, or to remove that thorn. So it's, we use that desire, but even that desire has to be overcome. You have to overcome that desire before full enlightenment. So you know that even Dhammachanda, you have to overcome it before enlightenment. Friends, this talk, is actually, there's no words to talk about these things. So because there's no words and concept to talk about Nibbana, I would like to end my talk. Let us sit for a moment or two. In this very life, may all beings attain Nibbana in this very life. Thank you very much for lending me your ears. It's not a deep, easy talk about Nibbana. It's beyond concepts and words and language. So, may you attain Nibbana. Thank you very much.